Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans by Lucius Maestrius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadette Perrin. Caesar. Chapter 63. But destiny, it would seem, is not so much unexpected as it is unavoidable, since they say that amazing signs and apparitions were seen. Now, as for lights in the heavens, crashing sounds borne all about by night, and birds of omen coming down into the forum, it is perhaps not worth while to mention these precursors of so great an event. But Strabo the philosopher says that multitudes of men all on fire were seen rushing up, and a soldier's slave threw from his hand a copious flame and seemed to the spectators to be burning. But when the flame ceased, the man was uninjured. He says, moreover, that when Caesar himself was sacrificing, the heart of the victim was not to be found and the prodigy caused fear, since in the course of nature certainly an animal without a heart could not exist. The following story, too, is told by many. A certain seer warned Caesar to be on his guard against a great peril on the day of the month of March, which the Romans call the Ides. And when the day had come and Caesar was on his way to the Senate house, he greeted the seer with a jest and said, "'Well, the Ides of March are come.' And the seers said to him softly, Aye, they are come, but they are not gone. Moreover, on the day before, when Marcus Lepidus was entertaining him at supper, Caesar chanced to be signing letters, as his custom was, while reclining at table, and the discourse turned suddenly upon the question of what sort of death was the best. Before anyone else could answer, Caesar cried out, That which is unexpected! After this, while he was sleeping as usual by the side of his wife, all the windows and doors of the chamber flew open at once, and Caesar, confounded by the noise and the light of the moon shining down upon him, noticed that Calpurnia was in a deep slumber, but was uttering indistinct words and inarticulate groans in her sleep, for she dreamed, as it proved, that she was holding her murdered husband in her arms and bewailing him. Some, however, say that this was not the vision which the woman had, but that there was attached to Caesar's house, to give it adornment and distinction, by vote of the Senate, a gable ornament, as Livy says, and it was this which Calpurnia in her dreams saw torn down, and therefore, as she thought, wailed and wept. At all events, when day came, she begged Caesar, if it was possible not to go out, but to postpone the meeting of the Senate. If, however, he had no concern at all for her dreams, she besought him to inquire by other modes of divination and by sacrifices concerning the future. And Caesar also, as it would appear, was in some suspicion and fear, for never before had he perceived in Calpurnia any womanish superstition, but now he saw that she was in great distress, and when the seers also, after many sacrifices, told him that the omens were unfavorable, he resolved to send Antony and dismiss the Senate. Chapter 64 
But at this juncture, Decimus Brutus, surnamed Albinus, who was so trusted by Caesar that he was entered in his will as his second heir, but was partner in the conspiracy of the other Brutus and Cassius, fearing that if Caesar should elude that day, their undertaking would become known, ridiculed the seers and chided Caesar for laying himself open to malicious charges on the part of the senators, who would think themselves mocked at, for they had met at his bidding, and were ready and willing to vote as one man that he should be declared king of the provinces outside of Italy, and might wear a diadem when he went anywhere else by land or sea. But if someone should tell them at their session to be gone now, but to come back again when Calpurnia should have better dreams, what speeches would be made by his enemies, or who would listen to his friends when they tried to show that this was not slavery and tyranny? But if he was fully resolved, Albinus said, to regard the day as inauspicious, it was better that he should go in person and address the Senate, and then postpone its business. While saying these things, Brutus took Caesar by the hand and began to lead him along, and he had gone but a little way from his door when a slave, belonging to someone else, eager to get at Caesar, but unable to do so for the press of numbers about him, forced his way into the house, gave himself into the hands of Calpurnia, and bade her keep him secure until Caesar came back, since he had important matters to report to him. Chapter 65 Furthermore, Artemidorus, a Canidian by birth, a teacher of Greek philosophy, and on this account brought into intimacy with some of the followers of Brutus, so that he also knew most of what they were doing, came bringing to Caesar in a small role the disclosures which he was going to make. But seeing that Caesar took all such roles and handed them to his attendants, he came quite near and said, Read this, Caesar, by thyself, and speedily, for it contains matters of importance and of concern to thee. Accordingly, Caesar took the roll and would have read it, but was prevented by the multitude of people who engaged his attention, although he set out to do so many times, and holding in his hand and retaining that roll alone, he passed on into the Senate. Some, however, say that another person gave him this role, and that Artemidorus did not get to him at all, but was crowded away all along the route. Chapter 66 So far, perhaps, these things may have happened of their own accord. The place, however, which was the scene of that struggle and murder, and in which the Senate was then assembled, since it contained a statue of Pompey, and had been dedicated by Pompey as an additional ornament to his theater, made it wholly clear that it was the work of some heavenly power which was calling and guiding the action thither. Indeed, it is also said that Cassius, turning his eyes toward the statue of Pompey before the attack began, invoked it silently, although he was much addicted to the doctrines of Epicurus. But the crisis, as it would seem, when the dreadful attempt was now close at hand, replaced his former cool calculations with divinely inspired emotion, replaced his former cool calculations with divinely inspired emotion. Well then, Antony, who was a friend of Caesar's and a robust man, 
was detained outside by Brutus Albinus, who purposely engaged him in a lengthy conversation. But Caesar went in, and the Senate rose in his honor. Some of the partisans of Brutus took their places round the back of Caesar's chair, while others went to meet him as though they would support the petition which Tilius Cimber presented to Caesar in behalf of his exiled brother, and they joined their entreaties to his, and accompanied Caesar up to his chair. But when, after taking his seat, Caesar continued to repulse their petitions, and as they pressed upon him with greater importunity, began to show anger towards one and another of them, Tilius seized his toga with both hands and pulled it down from his neck. This was the signal for the assault. It was Casca who gave him the first blow with his dagger in the neck, not a mortal wound, nor even a deep one, for which he was too much confused, as was natural at the beginning of a deed of great daring, so that Caesar turned about, grasped the knife, and held it fast. At almost the same instant both cried out, the smitten man in Latin, Accursed Casca, what doest thou? But the smiter, in Greek, to his brother, Brother, help! So the affair began, and those who were not privy to the plot were filled with consternation and horror at what was going on. They dared not fly, nor go to Caesar's help nay, nor even utter a word. But those who had prepared themselves for the murder bared each of them his dagger, and Caesar, hemmed in on all sides, whichever way he turned, confronting blows of weapons aimed at his face and eyes, driven hither and thither like a wild beast, was entangled in the hands of all, for all had to take part in the sacrifice and taste of the slaughter. Therefore Brutus also gave him one blow in the groin, and it is said by some writers that although Caesar defended himself against the rest, and darted this way and that, and cried aloud, when he saw that Brutus had drawn his dagger, he pulled his toga down over his head and sank, either by chance or because pushed there by his murderers, against the pedestal on which the statue of Pompey stood, and the pedestal was drenched with his blood, so that one might have thought that Pompey himself was presiding over this vengeance upon his enemy, who now lay prostrate at his feet, quivering from a multitude of wounds. For it is said that he received twenty-three, and many of the conspirators were wounded by one another as they struggled to plant all those blows in one body. Chapter 67 Caesar thus done to death, the senators, although Brutus came forward as if to say something about what had been done, would not wait to hear him, but burst out of doors and fled, thus filling the people with confusion and helpless fear, so that some of them closed their houses, while others left their counters and places of business and ran, first to the place to see what had happened, and then away from the place when they had seen. Antony and Lepidus, the chief friends of Caesar, stole away and took refuge in the houses of others. But Brutus and his partisans, just as they were, still warm from the slaughter, displaying their daggers bare, went all in a body out of the Senate house and marched to the Capitol, 
not like fugitives, but with glad faces and full of confidence, summoning the multitude to freedom and welcoming into their ranks the most distinguished of those who met them. Some also joined their number and went up with them as though they had shared in the deed and laid claim to the glory of it, of whom were Caius Octavius and Lentulus Spinther. These men, then, paid the penalty for their imposture later, when they were put to death by Antony and the young Caesar, without even enjoying the fame for the sake of which they died, owing to the disbelief of their fellow men. For even those who punished them did not exact a penalty for what they did, but for what they wished they had done. On the next day Brutus came down and held a discourse, and the people listened to what was said, without either expressing resentment at what had been done, or appearing to approve of it. They showed, however, by their deep silence, that while they pitied Caesar, they respected Brutus. The Senate, too, trying to make a general amnesty and reconciliation, voted to give Caesar divine honors, and not to disturb even the most insignificant measure which he had adopted when in power while to Brutus and his partisans it distributed provinces and gave suitable honors, so that everybody thought that matters were decided and settled in the best possible manner. Chapter 68 But when the will of Caesar was opened, and it was found that he had given every Roman citizen a considerable gift, and when the multitude saw his body carried through the forum, all disfigured with its wounds, they no longer kept themselves within the restraints of order and discipline, but after heaping round the body benches, railings, and tables from the forum, they set fire to them and burned it there. Then lifting blazing brands on high, they ran to the houses of the murderers with intent to burn them down, while others went every whither through the city seeking to seize the men themselves and tear them to pieces. Not one of these came in their way, but all were well barricaded. There was a certain Cinna, however, one of the friends of Caesar, who chanced, as they say, to have seen during the previous night a strange vision. He dreamed, that is, that he was invited to supper by Caesar, and that when he excused himself, Caesar led him along by the hand, although he did not wish to go, but resisted. Now, when he heard that they were burning the body of Caesar in the forum, he rose up and went thither out of respect, although he had misgivings arising from his vision, and was at the same time in a fever. At sight of him, one of the multitude told his name to another, who asked him what it was, and he to another, and at once word ran through the whole throng that this man was one of the murderers of Caesar, for there was among the conspirators a man who bore this same name of Cinna, and, assuming that this man was he, the crowd rushed upon him and tore him in pieces among them. This, more than anything else, made Brutus and Cassius afraid, and not many days afterwards they withdrew from the city. What they did and suffered before they died has been told in the life of Brutus. Chapter 69 At the time of his death, Caesar was fully fifty-six years old, but he had survived Pompey not much more than four years, while of the power and dominion which he had sought all his life, at so great risks, and barely achieved at last. 
Of this he had reaped no fruit, but the name of it only, and a glory which had awakened envy on the part of his fellow citizens. However, the great guardian genius of the man, whose help he had enjoyed through life, followed upon him even after death as an avenger of his murder, driving and tracking down his slayers over every land and sea, until not one of them was left, but even those who in any way soever either put hand to the deed or took part in the plot were punished. Among events of man's ordering, the most amazing was that which befell Cassius. For after his defeat at Philippi, he slew himself with that very dagger which he had used against Caesar. And among events of divine ordering, there was the great comet, which showed itself in great splendor for seven nights after Caesar's murder, and then disappeared, and also the obscuration of the sun's rays. For during all that year its orb rose pale and without radiance, while the heat that came down from it was slight and ineffectual, so that the air in its circulation was dark and heavy owing to the feebleness of the warmth that penetrated it, and the fruits, imperfect and half-ripe, withered away and shriveled up on account of the coldness of the atmosphere. But more than anything else, the phantom that appeared to Brutus showed that the murder of Caesar was not pleasing to the gods, and it was on this wise. As he was about to take his army across from Abydos to the other continent, he was lying down at night, as his custom was, in his tent, not sleeping but thinking of the future. For it is said that of all generals Brutus was the least given to sleep, and that he naturally remained awake a longer time than anybody else. And now he thought he heard a noise at the door, and looking towards the light of the lamp, which was slowly going out, he saw a fearful vision of a man of unnatural size and harsh aspect. At first he was terrified, but when he saw that the visitor neither did nor said anything, but stood in silence by his couch, he asked him who he was. Then the phantom answered him, I am thy evil genius, Brutus, and thou shalt see me at Philippi. At the same time, then, Brutus said courageously, I shall see thee. And the heavenly visitor at once went away. Subsequently, however, when arrayed against Antony and Caesar at Philippi in the first battle, he conquered the enemy in his front, routed and scattered them, and sacked the camp of Caesar. But as he was about to fight the second battle, the same phantom visited him again at night, and though it said nothing to him, Brutus understood his fate, and plunged headlong into danger. He did not fall in battle, however, but after the rout, retired to a crest of ground, put his naked sword to his breast, while a certain friend, as they say, helped to drive the blow home, and so died. 